If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're looking for the perfect Christmas gift, why not take out a subscription to BBC History magazine for just $34.99? That's a saving of over 50% on the shop price. A subscription is a present that can be enjoyed all year round and every issue will be delivered direct to their door. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history2020. If you're based in the US or Canada, you can subscribe for just $55. To find out more and for all other countries, head to buysubscriptions.com forward slash history2020. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Edith Hall, Professor of Classics at King's College London, who'll be discussing the lost city of Atlantis. Professor Hall's specialism is ancient Greek literature and she's published 30 books on topics ranging from Aristotle to ancient slavery. Professor Hall was joined by our digital editor, Emma Mason. So, Professor Hall, perhaps we could take us right back to the beginning. Remind us, who was Plato and what exactly was he known for? Plato was um, the first uh, really important um, philosopher um, in ancient Greece to, to write things down. He was actually Socrates pupil and he learned a very great deal about what Socrates, who was a great philosopher, had said, but uh, Socrates didn't leave us any writings. So Plato's the main uh, conduit through whom we get all the Socratic teaching. He's born in about 4 to 8 BC and lived to a very great age of th- then, of 80. Um, is said to have uh, been born and died on the same day of the year, exactly 80 years later. Um, into an extremely rich and aristocratic Athenian family who were all historically what we would call sort of on the right wing politically. Um, Some of them were military men, so he would have had a very good education. Um, They owned a great estate about five miles northeast of Athens city centre, where he may well have actually been born on the estate or, or somewhere around it. And he was uh, of quite a large family. He had at least one sister who was married uh, to another man interested in philosophy. And he had two brothers who, uh, well, he had three, but uh, two who survived to adulthood. Uh, And he was very close to them. So he uh, um, lived for eight years. He is most famous. The two things he's most famous for are founding his university, the first university as we'd really see it, which was called the Academy, uh, which was by the city walls of Athens. You can visit it today. You can actually go there and and see. It's very, very beautiful. And he wrote uh, his most famous book. It's called The Republic, 
which actually has nothing to do with republicanism as we know it. It's uh, really how any kind of um, autonomous city-state might uh, look in an ideal world. It's an ideal utopia, as he saw it. And of course, that has been the bedrock of moral and political philosophy ever since. His other great uh, influence was that he, his most brilliant student by far was the unbelievably great thinker Aristotle, who, while rejecting quite a lot of Plato's teachings, couldn't have got to where he did, which was considerable advance on a lot of Plato's thought, if he hadn't been trained at the best university um, in, in the Greek world. And what exactly is Plato's legend of Atlantis? Okay, Plato, um, in about, I mean, quite late in his life, um, in about three, five, nine-ish, and there's a reason why that's important, because he's come back from Sicily, and Sicily we will be talking about much later, okay, but he's returned from a a spell um, in Syracuse City in Sicily, and he um, has um, sort of dinner evening conversations with three other men, and they're quite important, who's chosen. And in two dialogues, uh, named after two of those people at dinner with him, um, he describes, has one of the other characters describe this lost world of Atlantis that had existed over 9,000 years before and starts out as a utopia but ends up as a dystopia um, through bad political management and uh, is ended up, is destroyed by the Athenians of more than 9,000 years ago um, with the will of the gods on their side and it's destroyed forever um, somewhere around, in, on, or around, or just outside of the pillars of Heracles, which uh, pillars of Hercules, which is 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 where you know, it's the westernmost sort of boundary of the Mediterranean. It marked the entry into the Atlantic Ocean, and Atlantis is called Atlantis because it's located at the mouth of the Atlantic Ocean. So it's completely untrue. <laughs> I mean, I, I and every other classical scholar are, you know, we're all completely in agreement about that now. It wasn't the case 100 years ago. Um, it's an astonishing piece of fiction writing, which, although it's set 9,200 years <laughs> um, in, in, ago, even from the middle of the 4th century BC, <laughs> It um, has got very futuristic sort of elements. It's, it's, it's an imaginary city, so it actually reads in a way more like a, a place in a, in a science fiction novel to us than a piece of serious ancient history. Plato just was an amazing writer. I think he was a better writer than philosopher, you know. And this is where I, all of his uh, different uh, dialogues, and there were many, many others apart from The Republic, they're all written as dialogues and there often are myths or legends or stories told in them. And I personally think this is his most uh, ornamental and lyrical piece of descriptive writing in his entire works. And it's no surprise that it's inspired, and we'll come on to this later, so many uh, novelists and uh, science fiction writers and indeed been incredibly popular at the movies. They've been dozens of movies set in this sort of uh, picturesque uh, undersea watery uh, uh, marine pal- uh, palace and um, community and islands it's uh, very visually alive the description with color and detail about what it looked like um, so ever since uh, silent movies were made set in Atlantis and of course uh, people today are most familiar with the 2001 um, Disney version of Atlantis which was a great hit with my ch- children who were born around that date. So you say it read like a science fiction novel, mm. how, how exactly did he describe Atlantis, what was it supposed to be like? Okay, the um, 
he puts it in the mouth of this very, very, very old man called Critias, who's a sort of relative, uh, distant relative and, uh, and, and a friend. And this is important because he's incredibly old. And he says he can remember his grandfather right, uh, telling him a story that was told by someone else who was Solon, who was a politician in Athens of, of legendary wisdom. So we're told this, but it's as though Plato's actually saying to us, you shouldn't really believe all this. This has come by the memories of several old <laughs> men um, and there's no written record of it at all. So I suppose with Solon back 200, 300 years, it would be like me saying that my, um, my father, who's in his 90s and still alive, could remember his grandfather telling him something which a politician like, say, Pitch the Younger, had once told him. So it's deliberately made as implausible (laughs) in terms of accuracy, even though he says it's a true story, all right? He says this is actually history. And then he describes in the most elaborate terms an impossible society, physically, you know, impossible. It's not quite clear whether it's even underwater or not. The gods, right at the beginning of time, divided up the different parts of the cosmos between them. Um, and uh, Athena, god Athens, which is why it's called Athens, and uh, she indeed, of course, was the tutelary deity of Athens. And Poseidon, who did actually fight with Athena for Athens and, and lost, the sea god, got Atlantis. And this was a massive uh, uh, island out west somewhere, you know, say, in the mouth of the Western Mediterranean, uh, the mouth of the Atlantic, out of the Western Mediterranean. And he fell in love with one of the Atlantean humans, um, and she was a, you know, a beautiful mortal woman, and had numerous children by her, including the original Atlas. His eldest son was called Atlas, and this is, that's how we have the sort of name um, that, that's associated with Atlantis and, and the Atlantic Ocean. And gradually he, he wanted to keep this woman sort of safe and well, we might regard it as coercive control. <laughs> and he kept her in the central palace in the central part of the island. And himself, because he's a god of earthquakes, you know, he's very powerful, he's got his trident. He um, made uh, a series of concentric canals around this island to make it impossible for her to escape. Um, and this uh, gradually got bigger and bigger, and the Atlanteans um, uh, eventually invented boats so that they could navigate these canals. The Athenians didn't have ships in this, this version. The Atlanteans did. They're a sea power. And they went and they conquered all the surrounding um, areas, all of Libya, all of um, the, the, all the lands which the Greeks did know were out west in the Atlantic. I mean, they didn't travel there, but they, they, they knew that there were islands like the Canaries and, and, and Iceland. You know, they, they, they knew that there was something out there. It wasn't just sea forever. And they developed this vast Western empire and it went all the way up to actually Turin in it, northwest Italy, um, which I happened to have come back from yesterday. <laughs> but it, it did. The Athenians, meanwhile, had got all on their side as allies all the Eastern people in the world. So you have these two empires. But he describes Athens 9,200 years before as an absolutely utopian, ideal society full of brave and moral people. Um, And he describes how gradually the... Atlanteans under Poseidon became decadent and this is linked to the fact that they could sort of sail around they fell in love with commodities they became very materialistic they acquired they acquired all kinds of uh, you know incredible foodstuffs and materials and 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 jewelry and gems and, and all the rest from their empire they became a sort of archetypal the archetypal decadent empire and eventually challenged Athens itself. Now, most unfortunately, at the point where the challenge goes out, the uh, second of these two dialogues, the Critias, uh, 
we haven't got the last part of it. Some, some bit of manuscript fell off. We simply don't know exactly how the war was conducted. But fortunately, we've been told at the beginning of the story what the outcome was. The outcome was that the Athenians won hands down uh, the great land power as they're, they're presented. Um, and there was an enormous uh, tsunami combined with a deluge and a flood which swept um, Atlantis out of sight forever. Wow, quite an incredible story. What a story, and Plato thought this up. I mean, you know, he is a great writer of fiction. And before we dissect what he might have meant by this story, <laughs> um, remind us, where exactly did he write this down and, 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 and when was when do we think he first we think he wrote this down in about 359, which matters because he twice went to stay for several years in Syracuse, in Sicily, where there was the family of tyrants, which just means basically unelected, non-hereditary boss leaders. And he had tried to intervene in the making of the constitutions there. He actually wanted to put some of his political ideas about what a good society would look like into practice. Now, he, he didn't manage to do that, but he had, he had wanted to try and do that. So he's had in his mind very much what would an ideal set of laws look like? You know, what would an ideal constitution look like? What kind of constitution makes for... It's quite utilitarian, in, in, which means the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Um, I mean, the societies, both the anti-diluvian literally before the flood Athens and the anti-diluvian Atlantis are pretty unpleasant if you're a modern democrat you know we would regard them as totalitarian societies without a doubt where you've got unelected bosses on 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 the top whether kings or philosophers telling everybody else what to do but that was you know what Plato that's what he thought would make people happier he didn't like the Athenian democracy I mean I think we'll come on more to politics in a minute he comes back to Athens, which is still a democracy, writes this down, um, no doubt, discussing it in very great depth with all his most brilliant students. Well, we know he did because Aristotle mentions it. He actually says, Aristotle, uh, and I always believe Aristotle, <laughs> Aristotle is a very, very sensible, practical, empirical person who likes to look at cause and effect and reasons. And he says, the great Plato invented this in order to teach political philosophy. He, he said it was an invention of Plato, it's not a true story. So Aristotle will have sat there with Plato, uh, the elderly Plato, as his brilliant young student, you know, trying to design the ideal utopian society. So was it a, a moralistic, uh, or, 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 or do you say a philosophical device? Yes, I would say exactly that. It, it binds together ethics and politics, like how should we be as individuals and how should we live together in a state? Uh, the Greeks hadn't really split those two branches of political theory and individual ethics. It was Aristotle, really, who, came, who did that later. Um, and it's not, it doesn't start from the bottom up. It doesn't start with what the individual wants or individual human rights or liberty or any of those kinds of concepts. It very much starts from the top down, how you organise society. It's rigidly hierarchical and class stratified. And uh, it's very strange that it doesn't even discuss slavery. Uh, there's no mention of slavery in these primordial uh, communities. But it's very paradoxical because I don't think if there hadn't been a radical democracy at Athens, which was founded um, 80 years before Plato was born. I mean, it had been, you know, it was very vigorous and very flourishing when he was born and it had survived for 80 years before he was even born. I don't think that political philosophy would have been invented. It was because they actually had had a radical revolution and been able to create what they wanted. If it, right, they'd have a very self-conscious change in how society was run, which was, I think, prompt to further thoughts like, how could we make it even better? I think the invention of political philosophy, as we see it, both in the Republic and in this extraordinary fable, is Plato's response to what he thought was wrong with 
the democracy, but it takes a very moral tone. And for in the Renaissance, for example, it was very often seen as not actually about specific political constitutions, but about a parable about how decadent countries with decadent people in them will always fall, like the ancient Romans, for example. You know, it was seen as a, a parable of decadence rather than a specific practical um, set of ideas for how an ideal society could look like, which we might actually really be able to build, which I think is what Plato was after. So reading between his lines, what do you mm. think he wanted to achieve? You know, what, was, what would be the ideal mm. way to live? Okay, well, he, 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 he says that in the Republic, which is finished, he's written before this, right, he's constructed a hypothetical possible future society. That, that's what he does. And it's ruled by wise philosophers and it's uh, very strictly class hierarchical. Everybody's got their job. You're either sort of working class and you must be trained to be a worker uh, or you're a military person and you must train to be a military person. But in this, what Critias actually says, who's the old man who's heard it from back generations, he actually says, well, wait a minute. It struck me when I was listening to you. He's been in the Republic classes, Critias. It struck me. I, I remembered this story that I was told as a child, as a small child. And it all came back to me last night. He says it all came back to me, this story I'd heard from, from my grandfather. Um, and isn't it amazing that society that you described, we actually had it in Athens 9,200 years ago. Uh, so it's like we've had it, but we lost it. And my own view, and, and, and I, this is a, probably about half of classical scholars would agree with me, is that it's a parable about how Athens herself had had an ideal constitution, became decadent, became a sea power. So Athens turned into, if you like, Atlantis. So we've got the good Athens and the bad Athens. And he counts the bad Athens as what it was in his own day when it was run by the rowers. They were the working class. They were the ones who um, gathered all the tribute in from the empire, won all the battles. You know, all the, all the uh, imperial subject cities were on the islands and on coasts. Sea power was how the Athenian Empire worked, and the Athenian Empire was uh, incredibly good for working class men. They got all kinds of liberties that nobody had ever had before in, in their class because they literally provided the energy that pulled the boats that got the money out of the empire. And Plato hated, hated this. He thought it was quite wrong that uneducated rowers um, should. Uh, have the majority, which they did in the assembly, and basically run the city. He thought that all the problems Athens had, which it did, um, it was far too militaristic and was, you know, all kinds of problems. I'm not denying that. He laid this all at the feet of uh, the uneducated majority having the say-so and argued that, um, in the Republic, he argues that we should build a society where philosophers, trained philosophers who were only interested in goodness and virtue and thinking about what is justice should be running the show. That, that's, that's all they do is, is, is attend to moral thinking. Um, but that is located back in anti-diluvian Athens. Um, the decadent, uh, democratic... And this very complicated word, phallasocratic, which means run by sea power, right? A, a constitution run on sea power uh, is, is split off. It's as though you've got a sort of uh, double Athens that's one's Atlantis. And that is um, the city that wrecks itself through getting too uh, arrogant and too able to move around in its ships and bully other people. And consequently, the power is wrested from the ruling monarchical class in Atlantis. But Atlantis was never run by philosophers. It was run by monarchs. As in monarchs, the way that we would know yeah. them in later periods. The family founded by uh, Poseidon's descendants. Um, they, they were 
uh, kings. Um, he didn't approve of uh, uh, monarchy either. He, he thought all constitutions, except the enlightened oligarchy of philosopher kings, were going to lead to corruption. He thought the only people who should have power, and I ha- this is where I will agree with him, are people who don't really want it. People, the minute you let people who want power have power, uh, you're going to have corruption and degeneracy. And I think quite a lot of us kind of agree with that. Some of the world's very greatest rulers have been very have actually been reluctant. They've they've had to step up because of circumstances, and they've often been poets or philosophers or uh, intellectuals. Quite a lot of us would like to see more um, uh, less power hungry and more educated people in charge. That doesn't mean that we want a totalitarian um, oligarchy, though. Uh, we would like to vote that in. And you mentioned earlier that uh, about half of classicists would agree with yeah. your explanation. What would the other half <laughs> say? <laughs> well, they, they, they would in turn split into a couple of... Uh, th- that position, I have to say, was uh, developed in, a, in an extraordinarily famous article by one of the world's most best classicists, sadly uh, died fairly recently, who was called Pierre Vidal-Naquet, who was an astonishing French classicist. And he, he was the one who said this could easily be about two different versions of Athens. And I, he, he writes so persuasively that I feel I should put his name in because uh, it's not me. Okay, The ones who won't accept so, well some will just say it's not as specific as that it's a much more general parable it isn't tied to the Athenian experience in that way it's about it's got bits of say the Persian empire in it it's got bits of uh the islands of the blessed in it it's got bits of the Phaeacians who the utopian island that Odysseus goes to in the Odyssey in it it's got bits of ancient Egypt in it sort of divide, divided between the Athenians at the Atlanteans. It's sort of every constitution that had ever appeared in literature before, right, has fed into it. And of course, I would agree with that in a way with the descriptive writing, but I still think it's more, I think, I think this is a parable about democracy. And there aren't that many democracies and most of them were in the Athenian empire. Um, a few archeologists, uh, archaeologically minded classicists are still trying to find the real Atlantis and trying to pin it on. Uh, uh, I mean, there were a considerable number of floods and tsunamis and earthquakes in the period between the early Bronze Age. Um, in fact, even earlier than that, you know, we we know. So it's very possible that there are traces, of course, in Plato's writing of, of, of folk memory of uh, islands that literally disappear. I mean, that does happen in the Mediterranean. Even, even, even now in the world, we know of islands that just suddenly disappear or appear because of earthquake. So I'm not saying they aren't in there, but I do think trying to find a specific location for Atlantis is, is really um, to misunderstand Plato's project fundamentally. The very fact that he sets this island where Greek ships just didn't go, they did not go very far into the Atlantic at all. The people who did were the Phoenicians. And I think there's quite a lot of the Phoenicians in the Atlanteans. The Phoenicians were a great empire before classical Athens became um, to, rose to, to, to its acme. And they were a great sea power. And they ran Western Mediterranean because, <laughs> uh, you know, they founded Carthage and um, they were very influential in southern Spain. You know, Barcelona is named after uh, Barca, you know, Hannibal Barca. Barca is the family name of the Carthaginian conquerors. So the Western Mediterranean was Phoenician. So I think there's quite a lot of the Phoenicians in it. But that doesn't mean it's about the Phoenicians. When did those theories emerge and and, and what are the sort of main contenders for where it might be? The, um, well, as I said, the the earliest responder to it that we know of is Aristotle, Plato's own student, who who was unequivocal that it was a myth through which you thought about political philosophy. But he was unequivocal about that. 
but that other people and later antiquity would you know suggested all kinds of things that it was somewhere in the mouth of the river nile because egypt is a, a phenomenon in the story the story is supposed to have been handed down for nine thousand years by the egyptians <laughs> um it's Sometimes it's located around the, um, you know, Sardinia, Western Mediterranean sort of island areas. Um, the Greeks seem to have been aware that there were different levels of depth and shallowness in the Mediterranean. So, you know, they, 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 they suggested some places. Some of them suggested, though, it was even over in um, uh, early Christians, thought it was something to do with Mount Ararat and... Um, the biblical flood, you know, it wasn't until the Renaissance that people actually started focusing on the Atlantic. It was when Plato's texts were uh, brought over from Byzantium um, and translated into modern languages and Latin and printed in the late 15th century, people were blown away by this story. I mean, you, you can imagine it. I mean, they'd never, they'd absolutely blown away by it. They'd hardly known about it because it's not in the Roman sources that had come up through the Latin word. So this was mind-blowing because at exactly the same time as the printing press was delivering Plato's Timaeus and Critias to libraries all across uh, Renaissance humanist Western Europe, um, you know, people were reading this at exactly the same time as, as people are, are um, founding colonies in the New World. So it, it blew their mind and everybody said it has to be in America. Maybe it's the Caribbean. Maybe, you know, there's a lost island in, 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 in the Caribbean. Maybe it's Iceland. You know, maybe it's the Canary Islands. But as they went further west, um, and once they discovered the Aztecs, uh, and the Mayan, I mean, the, the Mesoamerican empires with their extraordinary buildings, then everybody started saying these must be some sort of survivors of Atlantis. So the focus from the Renaissance onwards, because of the, the discovery of the rediscovery of the Atlantis story happening at exactly the same time as the extraordinary discoverers, um, like uh, discoveries of people like Christopher Columbus meant that the imagination was completely fired. It became one of the most popular early modern uh, ancient Greek texts by far. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Things haven't moved on so much. I mean, they really haven't. The, the basic techniques of argument, hypothesis, proof, whether you argue from, you know, a priori, you know, whether you start from first principles or you move towards first principles, all these kinds of things are all discussed in Plato and Aristotle between them. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And why exactly did... Plato claimed that it was real history. Atlantis was a real place. Well, another branch of philosophy, I mean, I said earlier that he, 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 he you know, developed ethics and political philosophy, but together, massive contribution. He's the founder of, of political philosophy and of sort of systematic ethics as, you know, how to be a good person, what is good behaviour, what is justice, what is virtue. He also is a key figure in another branch of equally major branch of ancient philosophy and modern philosophy, which is epistemology, which is the study of how we know things. And he was fascinated by this. And many of his dialogues are trying to, uh, again, very relevant to this day, distinguish between facts, how do we know things that really are true, and rumour or fiction or Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts, you know, manipulation of opinion. And this is a core project in Plato, is the pursuit of 
proof of true knowledge and w- what it might be. So he, because of that, loves playing with, the, is there a distinction between uh, what they called muthos, myth, and historia, history? If it's all by hearsay, which this one is, it's like I heard from him and he heard from him and they heard it from the Egyptians, then, uh, and it was never written down, then who's to say whether it's true or not? There is no way of knowing whether something that has never been written down is true or not. Um, most of us would probably, uh, as modern rationalists, say that, you know, chicken, uh, feather turns into the chicken and, you know, it's impossible for any kind of real truth not to get elaborated. Um, but there are people who say that all mythology has got a kernel of truth of some kind in it. You know, e- even, even um, you know, the sack of Troy, almost certainly it, as narrated by Homer, didn't happen that way. There probably wasn't a Helen of, of, of Sparta who ran away with a handsome prince, you know. <laughs> but there is a kernel of truth because the Greeks did colonise northwest Asia Minor, right? They did go and beat up the residents of the area around Troy um, uh, because they wanted control of the Dardanelles. So if you believe there is some... And Plato's thinking about all these issues. So he deliberately, as I said right at the beginning, sets it up as a problematic source of knowledge. He doesn't say, and I found this 9,000-year-old papyrus... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is signed and sealed by um, somebody and, and, and I've te- tested it by its, 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 you know, carbon dating, right, to prove that it's true. He doesn't. He says he heard from him and he heard from him and he heard from some Egyptian priests several hundred years ago that there was this tradition. So he sets it up for you to actually discuss whether it's a source of true knowledge or not. Okay, so that's his whole, the yeah. whole point, okay. Yes. which is still fascinating fiction writers today. I mean, how many fictions play with what might have been or, you know, historical fiction is in itself a riveting genre to me because it's frame, you know, going to set a novel in, I don't know, you know, the French Revolution. And so we, can, we will try and describe historically exactly what Paris looked like in 1789 but then we're going to invent all kinds of people and things that went on actually according to our own contingent 21st century agenda and that's what Plato's doing with his own contingent fourth century political agenda um I'm absolutely sure that several islands with weird societies on them sank beneath the waves in tsunamis it, Nine thousand years before Plato, it's not implausible. But then, it, but what he then does, there is no other trace of it whatsoever in any writer before him, and very few after. I think people who've been to see things like the Disney movie or read one of the endless comic book versions of, of Atlantis stories, you know, if they knew that they were actually in direct contact with the brain of Plato, you know, I think they'd be amazed. I think they'd be really, really amazed that uh, such a sort of elevated and intellectual figure that they probably crack jokes about and, you know, like, it's all Greek to me. Um, They are actually accessing very directly just two simple texts that go together. They're, like, sequel, uh, that that, that they follow on. The conversation occurs, you know, consecutive days. So I I love just watching people read Atlantis magazines <laughs> or <laughs> go to the Disney and, and just smugly knowing that they're even the details, all these beautiful details of how the fountains are set out and how uh, the Temple of Poseidon's made with these beautiful glittering gemstones and marbles, all of that is straight out of Plato. So somewhat historically accurate. <laughs> well, it's 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 a the, the, Fairly faithful reconstructions of what Plato described, yes. Epistemology is a branch of, of philosophy everyday people do all the time, is, is ask each other, how do you know? How do you know that? What's your evidence? They don't realise that they're, you know, in philosophy grade one. <laughs> the, minute, <laughs> the minute they, cut, you know, say, uh, you don't believe it just because you saw it on the internet, do you? 
you know, the sort of conversations we'll have with our children. How do you establish veracity? Um, and so it is partly about that. It's partly about epistemological concerns, but I think it's more predominantly about political theory. And why do you think the legend endures today? Is it is it the speculation about whether it was a real place or, um, as you say, is it just a continuation of that mind-blowing, wow, this is an incredible story? What, why do you think... Well, I think I think you 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 said it. There's something about uh, a lost civilization, which just seems to be endlessly fascinating to the human race. The human race wants its cultural ancestors. We want a family tree, not biological ancestors so much. I think as like, where did we come from? What were the middle uh, stages between being higher apes and? recorded history which of course doesn't start till about 5000 BCE is when you first get um Babylonian Mesopotamian and you know writing right we don't have recorded history until and Plato's very clever he sort of got that in, in his head that the, so he starts it off before there is any writing to explain why there is no version um people really 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 do want to know about that Everybody wants to know that. I, and I, I can't give you an explanation for that. I, I would say that is a general truth about the human experience. And we're probably alone amongst the animals in being able to do that. And think, you know, think, where did we come from? Who are we? So that's part of it. But it's also just so unbelievably beautifully um, written. Um, the, the very detail of it. I mean, it's pages and pages and pages. I mean, it, 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 it took me two or three hours to read it in Greek uh, uh, over the weekend. And I, I read Greek fast um, to get every detail. He's, he's really gone to town. And that reminds me more of those world-making computer games that children like so much. You know, world-making. It's not just about history. It's about what shall I put here? Shall I put a beautiful temple there? I mean, I, I, my, my children have had computer games where they do exactly that. It, and set in antiquity, you know. <laughs> so. Um, Everybody likes world making in their heads. And because it was, um, you know, I think Jules Verne has got a lot to answer for because Atlantis is visited in uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea. And because Verne is the father of science fiction, really, I mean, there are other contenders, but I mean, he, the extraordinary impact of, of, of those narratives. So everybody who's ever imitated Jules Verne is actually imitating Plato, even though they don't know it, but through, through him. Um, I don't know an awful lot about popular culture related to Atlantis, but I can promise you, if you just Google on it, you will find you know, hundreds of novels of one way or another, either used actual Atlantis or borrowed Plato's world-making descriptions in constructing other utopias and dystopias. You know, nobody who writes any utopian or, or dystopian novel is not in some ways indebted to Plato. Amazing. And um, what would you say is the significance of the story today? Well... <laughs> Uh, I think it's acquired new significances with global warming. I, I, I predict solemnly that we'll have a whole rash of new Atlantis um, uh, discourses, novels, movies, whatever, computer games, because of the idea that you actually just melt, you know, melt the global ice patches and Antarctica to the extent that uh, we all do get inundated, literally inundated, and, and, and so on. Uh, there was a Kevin Costner movie a few years ago um, called Waterworld, which was all about that. And I think there will be many, many, many more. And it is very probably a reality that we're all, you know, maybe not my generation, but my children's generation may well in 30 years' time be, be facing rising coastlines at an alarming rate. So that's one reason. But I think fundamentally, it's far, far more that humans have this capacity for um, 
comparative anthropology, comparative constitutional theory for imagining uh, a different world, either for good or ill, which is quite crucial. It forms every aspect of our political agency. If we didn't think we couldn't get things better, or at least prevent them, sorry, if we didn't think we couldn't make things better, or at least prevent them from getting any worse, we wouldn't go out and vote, right? It's actually, despite being a beautiful paradox, I've always thought this, despite being, I think, an anti-democratic fantasy, right, where he develops uh, the idea of a perfect society, which he thinks would be non-democratic by contrasting Atlantis and Athens. I actually think he's come up with a very good uh, argument for everybody, for democracy, because we've all got a stake in imagining how things could be better. And that, that is the democratic project that everybody has a right to uh, vote in whoever they think is best qualified to give them a better future. Now, we all see democracies voting for things that, that we might regard, some of us might regard as incredibly self-destructive all the time. But um, to use Plato's own arguments, I would say that's because they're not, the, the electorates aren't as educated as, as they might be. If We've all got to be philosopher kings would be my um, uh, uh, response to that. Right. If we if we if we paid more attention in secondary education in particular to uh, citizenship and and, and history, um, you know, just knowing about the world's history and politics, then I think you know that was comp- made compulsory to a much greater extent between the ages of eleven and sixteen. You know, that's me being a bit of a world tyrant, isn't it? You know, across the planet, <laughs> uh, then. Um, I think electorates would vote more sensibly than we've been seeing in some of the world's most powerful nation states recently. And, um, I'm jumping back slightly here, but you reminded me then when you were um, talking about societies being better. Um, um, there's no mention of slavery. No. Um, why do you think that was? Was he trying to say something about slavery or why did he omit slavery from... Atlantis. It's it's very interesting question. Um, there are other passages in Plato where there is an implication that uh, uh, he's not entirely happy with slavery. Um, I mean, hardly any ancient Greeks. There were some, but there were very few uh, ever proposed that slavery was just wrong. You know, totally wrong, contrary to nature, and, and should be abolished. There were one or two. Uh, but they were minority, very minority voices. Aristotle talks about them in, in his politics. But in the dialogues of Mino, uh, for example, he proves that a, a slave boy has got as much capacity for mathematical thinking as his master, which is very curious that he might do that, that the actual intellectual potential, he does some sums with the boy, some geometry on on the floor in the dust with a stick. Um, he doesn't spell that out, but the implication, why, why does he pick a slave, not, not a free boy? It, it, it's, it's very strange. And there's a very frightening passage, I've always found it very frightening in the Republic, where he just uh, describes, he's, he, he's doing a hypothetical situation, but the hypothetical situation is that uh, a man who owns many, many, many slaves um, I don't know, about 50, I think. I can't remember the exact number. Um, if they uh, were given half a chance, wouldn't those slaves kill their uh, master and mistress and all, all their children immediately? That's taken for granted, that you had to suppress them with such violence and coercion. Because otherwise, you know, and, and that seems to me terrifying. He's, he's sort of saying that this imman, immanent, inherent violence is sort of locked up in society. Um, I mean, the, the trouble for the, for the ancient Greeks and Romans was, was that pre-technological advances, that, that there was not, there was too much labour. I'm not justifying it for a minute, but there was too much labour um, to be done to, if you're going to have any kind of leisured class who could sit around doing philosophy. Uh, they simply you know, you had got to do all that threshing and all that mining and, and, and all the rest of it. So 
I think I've never said this before, but I can I, I can see a case for arguing that Plato kind of didn't like it. That's absolutely fascinating. He says that the ideal Athens that he he sets up in the past, it's got all these gloriously noble peasant farmers, <laughs> these sort of noble men who who aren't educated but they're very pious and 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 and, and god fearing, and and they they sort of live in the hills and and sort of don't drink and don't smoke you know, and, and, and till their land. It's a sort of ideal, almost Edenic. It's almost, some people have, have compared the Athens of the Atlantis stories to a, a, a sort of uh, a, a pre-Lapsarian Adam and Eve Garden of Eden. And speaking of Adam and Eve, um, did people in Atlantis have you know relationships in the in the way that we would you know with, with yes married and... yeah 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 that definitely no yes so so did the ancient Athenians but interestingly for feminists uh, where Atlantis is deeply patriarchal you know Poseidon locks up his girlfriend on the island and it's very definitely run by kings this is another reason why it looks like democratic Athens which for all the democracy for men was a deeply sexist society, even by ancient standards. It really, really was. It was much more sexist than most other Greek city-states like Sparta and Lesbos. There were places where women had far more freedom than in Athens. But um, the anti-diluvian Athens, the noble, idealised, pious, happy peasants, women have the same rights and status. And they even are trained for the non... There's no navy, of course, but for the infantry... Uh, and he's, he even says that's why we've got Athena in full armour, because in those days, women were equal. Now, in the Republic, uh, for the, the top class, you know, women can be philosopher queens. They can. Um, he, he's quite clear that some women have intellectual and moral potential and physical um, to, be, to, to, to do as well as men. So he's a very odd mix of what we would call the highly reactionary, you know, he hates the sort of working class um, and, and the commercial areas and the harbour areas and the docks and the prostitutes and the, you know, that, that sort of urban working class um, with extremely radical ideas about women's intellects. So if you are a woman, you might actually want to live in uh, anti-diluvian Athens, um, and you probably wouldn't have wanted to live in antediluvian Atlantis, which is run by male god and his male offspring. Fascinating. And um, in terms of um, sort of a few questions on Plato himself, um, we've, we've touched on a lot of them already. But um, sticking with the theme of, of, of marriage, there. Plato himself never married, uh, which I understand was highly unusual in ancient Greece. Do we know what the backstory is to that? Why he never married? Oh, well, um, we don't know. We can speculate. One of the things is, is simply that other philosophers who founded schools of philosophy with residential um, colleges where people went and lived together uh, quite often looked something like a monastery right that, that single men would actually get together that he wasn't alone in that uh, the Pythagoreans in Italy were another philosophical school founded by Pythagoras and, and, and that, although there were women Pythagoreans uh, they weren't encouraged to have sort of um, nuclear families right that's not the thing so that's clearly an important part of it uh, but he may have been what we call gay. He may well have been. He, um, in one dialogue called The Symposium, um, you know, the, the entire thing is about homoerotic love. Um, now, most ancient Greek Athenian men actually flirted with boys and girls. That, that was sort of routine. But uh, there was a recognition that some men didn't particularly want to have sexual... Congress um, with women. Uh, I, I, I think he, I just get the impression that he really had 
too much to do to be bothered. He's also incredibly rude about Socrates' wife. You know, in the dialogues where Socrates is in prison and before he he takes the hemlock, his poor wife is treated so badly by these philosophers, you know, when he he should be with his wife and children, Socrates, in his last hours. You know, they're sent away because they're making too much noise so he can talk to his circle of disciples, male disciples. That seems to me more that they're, they're a pain and a difficulty and will distract me from my great project, which is to rewrite philosophy for the entire world forever um, and run my academy. Um, I, I, I think it may be a combination of just a, just a general dislike for, you know, women um, combined, even though he respected their intellect, but not wanting a physical relationship with them. But I, I can't possibly prove that. That's, you know, it's pure speculation. Uh, Aristotle certainly liked to have women and children, um, you know, other philosophers, some did, some didn't. And what was his relationship like with Aristotle? <laughs> well, deeply admiring, a mutual admiration club. Um, he called him the library, the walking library, because Aristotle was always reading. When Aristotle wasn't there, Aristotle was with him from the age of 17 to 37, 20 years, and did not marry till he left, which is interesting from what he did marry as soon as he left, which might imply that you weren't encouraged to marry while you were actually studying at the academy. Um, deeply admiring. Uh, I think there are several passages, certainly in the Republic, for example, where he bans all literature, art and theatre <laughs> from the Republic because it sets bad examples, right? It's totalitarian, just censorship. Like, you can't have any tragedy because people do immoral things to it. Uh, but he actually says there, if there's anyone here who would like to defend tragedy's worth or poetry's worth in, in a prose work, please do so. And guess what? You know, a few decades later, Aristotle writes the Poetics, <laughs> where it's a prose work which says, this is why tragedy is good for the city. And he says it's because it it, it uh, makes you look at really unpleasant things together, think about them philosophically, how to avoid them, think about feeling pity and fear, all that kind. Of, you know, he develops a whole defence of art. And I hear Plato putting down the uh, market to his most clever uh, student. Um, as Aristotle progressed in his own writing, and uh, he's considerably you know younger. Um, he was 37 when Plato died at 80. Um, he rejected almost all the really core ideas in, 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 in Plato's um, um, general philosophy, uh, I, which is called idealist philosophy. He said that our world, Plato said this world doesn't really, uh, is not really authentic, the material world around you. It's just a bad copy of an eternal transcendent world of perfection, uh, which is immortal and we're immortal in that we come back uh, reincarnated. Aristotle said that's a road of absolute tosh. There's only one, only one world that we can know and it's very real and it's right here. And isn't it fascinating to study it from every possible point of view? Uh, so he did natural science as well as philosophy, which uh, Plato didn't. So they, they actually were at considerable odds philosophically. But Aristotle, as I said at the beginning, couldn't have got there without being tra trained by the most brilliant philosopher in the world. That's how he honed his intellectual skills. Uh, he's a sort of, and he's therefore, he's also the intellectual grandson of Socrates. Right? Socrates teaches Plato, Plato teaches Aristotle, and you know, with Aristotle, we get the foundation of many other disciplines, including as well as philosophy. Amazing. And um, and was Plato his real name? No, he was called Aristoclides, the son of Ariston. Um, it's a nickname in antiquity. Various theories were put forward. One is that he had a very wide forehead, a sort of intellectual forehead. Um, but the most common one is that he was very broad-chested, and that's connected with the uh, report that he was very good at wrestling, that he'd actually been a champion wrestler 
in his youth. Uh, so he got called broad-chested, broady, broad one. Um, but it stuck. I mean, and Plato is, is 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 still a name in modern Greek. I mean, people get, are called Plato. <laughs> um, it's it's just it's just what it is. Uh, I like to think of him being a wrestler. I, I, well, I like the idea that philosopher isn't this sort of neurasthenic, uh, weedy, going uh, uh, to fade away, skeletal, you know, ascetic. I like the idea of, of strong physical training. And he does put very high value on, on uh, good intellects working best inside healthy, strong bodies. He does. He, 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 he does think we ought to train our bodies in gymnastics, which is the word they use for all athletics, uh, just as we train our minds in philosophy. And why did he adapt the name Plato? Adapt? Um, why did he take up, why, why, why call himself? I don't know. Do, do you have a theory? <laughs> no, I wondered he, if there was a... People, people quite often got nicknames in, in antiquity from some aspect of their appearance. That was not uncommon. The other th- reason, I suppose, is that families tended to only have three or four names in them. So boys were, first sons were always called after their grandfathers, right? And that meant that you might have, with several sons in the family all calling people off, you might have a large number of people all called Aristoclides. So nicknames become much more useful um, in, in where everybody's called the same. I have to say, even my extended family, you know, my sister has a, a son called Richard, my husband's called Richard, so we have a sort of big Richard and little Richard. You have to, so why not just call them Plato? <laughs> when and how did he die? You mentioned earlier, um, he died at 80 years. But... Well, some people said, in that, even in antiquity, there were, there were different reports. People were always writing fanciful biographies of the great philosophers. Biography was a great genre. Uh, some people said he just died in his sleep. The, some people said that he uh, died while listening to a beautiful uh, woman musician play the pipes, which was quite a nice idea. Lovely. <laughs> but he doesn't get a violent death or, or a, a punishment like uh, Socrates, or uh, and he gets to live till he's 80. So, you know, he didn't do badly. No. no. And um, what would you say is Plato's legacy today? He's he's the founder in terms of actual writing down of Western philosophy without a single shadow of a doubt. There were other philosophers before him, including Socrates. Uh, Many of his dialogues actually have Socrates in discussion with this earlier generation. So the men who were in their prime when he was born, when Plato was born. So they're operating in Periclea in Athens. So he's got a Gorgias. Gorgias was a very famous philosopher from Sicily. He's got a Protagoras. Protagoras was a very famous philosopher from uh, Abdera. Um, he's got a Cratylus. These, these are all people who were practising what we would call philosophy uh, in the same generation as Socrates. Plato can recall them or recall hearing about them from Socrates and has recorded them for us because their own writings are lost. So we have to call him the founder because he's the one who wielded the stylus on the papyrus that got all these characters down for us. Um, And in those dialogues, he also founds, really, I mean, I said they had been developed in that generation before, but the three great branches of of Greek philosophy, which brings us back uh, in a nice circle again, which are ethics and politics, how should we live? How should we behave, either individually or together? Epistemology, how do we know things? What is knowledge? And the other one is either called ontology, or well, it is ontology, which means what is being? What actually is it, our existence? You know, it's the sort of more mad philosopher-like question. How do I know that, you know, uh, I'm not... A, am I somebody in somebody else's computer game? That kind of question about existence, which also embraces metaphysics, which is the gods, what you can't see. But those are the three great branches of Greek philosophy, and they're all there set out in dialogues in Plato. Um, what It's not 
the case that the rest of philosophy is a footnote to Plato sometimes has been said. I would say it's a footnote to Aristotle. Um, but there are many new branches of philosophy that arose, you know, philosophy of mind, aesthetics, that, that there are plenty of, of branches of philosophy that have been invented subsequently. But in terms of their actual methods, logical induction and so on, things haven't moved on so much. I mean, they really haven't. The, the basic techniques of argument, hypothesis, proof, whether you argue from, you know, a priori, you know, whether you start from first principles or you move towards first principles, all these kinds of things are all discussed in Plato and Aristotle between them, um, which is quite chastening sometimes when we like to think that we've made so much progress. We have technologically, but intellectually, you know, apart from applied science, it's, uh, and, and all that, in, that entails, which is, of course, amazing. Um, I, I really can sometimes not believe what I'm reading, that it was written, written 2,500 years ago. That was Professor Edith Hall. You can find tons more material on the ancient world on our website. Just go to historyextra.com and search for ancient. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Listen tomorrow for the latest episode in our Princes in the Tower podcast series. 